I don't know anything about suffering, as in losing three children to a sickness you can't even name, as in losing your baby boy five days after birth while you rode a market truck coming home to see them, as in saying that a dead child has returned rather than died, as if that could make it all easier, as in riding the back of a motorbike and hitting an acacia tree, the chain or the wheel snapping your femur. As in waking every morning to the sound of your children dying from whooping cough. As in walking the fields at noon to glean a bowl full of grain. How painful when your husband never returned from the war and the journey he made across the desert to find a job in Janina, to marry the second wife so much younger. She didn't bear a stillborn three years in like you. As if you weren't trying, as if you didn't want to please him, as if every dead and dying thing was under your control and you could make the clouds drop rain and breathe life into a brittle carcass by the roadside. As if you could even begin to think with a mind that for once wasn't parched, as in the road you walk to your field every morning, several kilometers away. Joining with the others who bear the same blows, wear the same cracks, who sweep the endless horizon with their eyes and reach their jagged arms to the single cloud that won't let go, won't seal up earth's scars, though everyone asks it why. What do we do with the deep questions of life when what we see happening around us, in our lives, in our world, sucks out what little energy we have for each day. When we find that our questions bring us to a kind of spiritual desert, we raise our hands up to God, but it seems as if he's silent, unwilling to give answers, to shed light into our situation. This poem I shared with you is one I wrote about my own experiences returning to where I grew up, Chad, a country in northern Africa where I lived for 10 years. I wrote the poem a few years ago when I went back, And uh, I was overcome by the pain I saw in so many of my friends. Poverty, illness, death. I was overwhelmed, and so it led me to write this plea to God. Something like we see in Jeremiah 12, asking, Where is God in the desert of life? Let's pray. This is a prayer of Thomas Merton. O flaming heart, unseen and unimagined in this wilderness, you, you alone are real. And here I found you. Here will I love and praise you in a tongueless death until my white devoted bones, long bleached and polished by the winds of this Sahara, relive at your command. Rise and unfold the flowers of their everlasting spring. Amen. For those of you guys who don't know me, uh, I am Professor Aaron Brown. I teach in the Language and Literature Department. If you haven't already guessed, I'm also a poet. That's why I started this with a poem, because I can. Uh, I live here in Sterling with my wife, Minda. She is a public health researcher at KU. And I'm in my second year of teaching here at the college. Um, It wasn't that long ago when I was sitting in a chapel much like this, in a place just like Sterling, a Christian college in the Midwest. Only we had chapel three times a week instead of two. And if we ever had a special speaker series, we'd even maybe have four chapels a week. That sounds great, doesn't it? Sounds awesome. It was good. 
But to me, there was nothing more symbolic of my college experience than chapel. It was a place to run into friends, to take a break from the busy morning of classes, and sometimes to sit and be arrested by the music or the words coming from the stage. It was a place of approaching God together. Freshman year, I was all open eyes in a never-ending honeymoon phase. From the intense, thought-provoking classes I was taking to the endless pickup basketball games, even to the endless cookie platter in the cafeteria. That's the place to be. In chapel, I'd sit on the edge of my seat, the songs plucking at some deeper chords within me. Or maybe this is more honest. If I'd stayed up too late working on some project or assignment, sit back in my assigned seat in chapel, slouch down, let the speaker's words wash over me until I'd faded off into some half-awake state, and that wasn't prayer, by the way. But was this really the Christian college I had wanted to go to for so long? My rude awakening came during late nights when I would awake in my dorm to the sound of vomiting. Someone come back from some party late at night, or in the morning as I got ready for the day, I'd walk into the bathroom, smell the, the sour smell of weed, and think to myself, how could they? Like a Pharisee, I went about my day looking down at people I considered to be less Christian, or not Christian at all in my eyes. When I encountered other students who said they struggled to believe in God, who said they failed to see the need for scripture and, rule, and rules and faith, some voice inside me snickered. You're not one of them. Keep doing what you're doing. Don't let them drag you down. By sophomore year, that honeymoon phase had ended. The more I got to know others, the more I began to know myself, the less certain I became. What happens when we go through life in close community with others? Intimacy breeds conflict, a professor of mine used to say. I'd set up all these expectations for my friends. I, I wanted them to do things my way, on my own terms. I was disappointed to find out that maybe they just wanted to do what they wanted to do. Rather than spending a day exploring Chicago with me as I had planned, maybe they just wanted to spend their Saturday resting, getting started on the next week's work. That's okay. I had invested so much into a longing to be known, to receive some kind of affirmation, that when it didn't come from the people around me, I felt isolated, shut off. As my ex expectations to find, find a home in this place did not line up with reality, I began to doubt. The irony is that what I had at first ridiculed in others, I became myself. I became the doubter. Even when I didn't realize it, I was too high-minded still convinced I was living the right way. I became a cynic, scoffing at every little fault I found in others while ignoring what was happening inside me. Junior year, something changed. Through the help of others around me, what I was reading and learning in my classes, I realized that the faults and disappointments I was finding in others were really misguided flaws within my own soul. Junior year was painful like the necessary pruning of a small tree so that as it grows taller, it will have a stronger and wider reach while remaining deeply rooted. It was during this time that my cynicism was rebuked by the reality of God and community. Why did I spend all this time navel-gazing when there were people around me needing help, a listening ear, a shoulder to cry on, companionship during life's dark days, 
friends wrestling with depression, identity, friends dealing with traumatic memories or intense spiritual doubt. It was in these moments that God was saying to me, are you really not satisfied with my grace? Are you loving yourself, your doubts, your sin more than me, more than others? You say you believe in me, but where is your love for your neighbor? It was in junior year that I was introduced to the Greek word acedia. Acedia is an ancient word that monks used to describe the slow and dreadful early afternoon hours when you're so slothful you can't get anything done. The moment you've realized you're staring at the page, but you're not understanding any of it. The moment your screen, your mind is blank, and you fight the overwhelming urge to turn off, to tune out. In college, this usually results in a nap, right? Mind's blank. Well, solution, get some sleep or coffee. But in the spiritual life, there's no letting up, no resisting that to which you've been called. The monks resisted what they called this noonday demon, acedia. This word helped diagnose a spiritual laziness I felt within me. Perhaps I had been distracting myself from God, from what God was asking me to do, to be present to be concerned with living a life of truth and love and letting God handle the rest. Instead, I was stuck, frozen in this state of paralysis, frustrated with the lack of progress I was feeling in my spiritual life. I felt like I was in a desert. Even worse, there were times I didn't even realize that. I like to think that in this passage of Jeremiah, the prophet is feeling the full weight of acedia. In our previous chapel messages, we have seen prophecy after prophecy, speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem, of Judah, the scattering of God's people. Jeremiah, called to act as a messenger of God, is seeing little results. And yet God is continually asking him to step forward, to speak light into the darkness. We see in the opening verse in Jeremiah 12 that Jeremiah is wrestling with a state of spiritual paralysis. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Jeremiah compares God's pure state with the spirit of complaining and mourning that Jeremiah feels within himself. It's as if Jeremiah recognizes the irreconcilable differences between the two of them. But Jeremiah wants to close the gap, but he doesn't know how. His complaint? We are introduced to it at the end of verse 1. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? This question of why, of why bad things happen to good people, why the bad people seem to get away with everything, is a classic question we see throughout Scripture. Why do injustices keep happening? Why are victims continually victimized? If God is a just God, how does he let all this happen? These questions challenge what is known as the retribution principle, that the righteous should prosper, that the wicked should fail. But it's not always like that, is it? I'm reminded of a poem by R.S. Thomas, a 20th century Welsh Anglican priest. Though a priest, he wrestled with this desert of doubt, too, struggling to reconcile a loving God with what he saw around him. His poem's called Witch. And in the book, I read, God is love. But lifting my head, I do not find it so. Shall I return to my book and between print wonder and air heavy with scent of this one word or not trust language 
only the blows that life gives me, wearing them like red tokens with which an agreement is sealed? The poet, consumed by a moment of doubt, reasoned First John 4 that God is love. For a second, he wonders whether he should trust the words in front of him. After all, the blows that life gives have proven enough for him. Experience is a harsh teacher, or so the saying goes. How interesting, then, that Thomas chooses to end his poem on a metaphor. Wearing them, wearing those like red tokens, he says. Like a waxy stamp on a letter, sealing an agreement. And I can't help but think of one who wore red seals of an agreement on his own body, Christ. And it's here that the poet, ironically named Thomas, has to feel these wounds before his doubt is reversed. He is a crisis of faith, doubts God's love, but finds God's love embodied in the death of Christ on the cross, embodied on those signs on his body. But Jeremiah, he was living in a time hundreds of years before Christ came. Jeremiah had only an inkling of what the Messiah would do. Uh, Jeremiah was suffering. No better symbolize that in the disobedient and wayward hearts of the people of Judah, what we see, what we've seen up until this point in Jeremiah 12. It is in this state that Jeremiah begins his plea. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart towards you. That's in verse 3. He feels God is drawing him closer. And yet Jeremiah is equally frustrated with God. God's silence perplexes him. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? He asked in verse 4. The question of how long reverberates throughout Scripture. Reminded of Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. I'm going to pause there and come back to that rest of the psalm later. Maybe just like Jeremiah, you find yourself asking the question, how long? How long, O Lord? You pray, but your prayers are met with silence. You feel a general acedia, a spiritual desert spread throughout your soul. You need answers, or you ask God for healing. Maybe a family member suffers from an illness. Maybe you have lost someone recently that was close to you. Maybe your time at Sterling is coming to a close. You're graduating. You don't know what the next steps will be. You've sent out a resume a hundred times. No response. You thought that that business thing or that teaching gig was what you were called to do. But now, now you're not so sure. God response, God's response to Jeremiah may prove a bit of a shock to your system. Beginning in verse 5, we see the Lord respond to Jeremiah. If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? Think of that. Try to outrun a horse, right? It's not going to happen. And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? What will happen if you were placed right in the middle of the jungle? Could you find your way out of that? It's as if God is taunting Jeremiah, 
saying that Jeremiah hasn't got out of his comfort zone. He's been playing it safe. Jeremiah doesn't know what's coming. It will be even more difficult than what has already happened. Hard to imagine that, right? Think of everything we've read in Jeremiah up until this point. God continues to respond, rebuking Jeremiah and warning, warning him to not even trust his own family, his own people. In verse 7, we see the true source of God's heartbreak. I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. God mourns the loss of his chosen people. They have abandoned him, choosing other things to worship in place of him. God further describes the state of things. Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. This is in verse 10. They have trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. The land of milk and honey has been just transformed, destroyed into a desolate wilderness, a desert. The spiritual state Jeremiah feels is mirrored in the landscape around him, drained of the life-giving power of God because his people have broken covenant with him. Even the land is in mourning. It cries out to God as we see in verse 11. It would be easy to tune out God in this passage, to say that he has hardened his heart against the people of Judah who rejected him. It would be easy to hear how in verse 13, those who live in the land plant wheat, but when harvest comes, they just reap thorns, right? They are ashamed of their harvest. And God seems to be watching from afar, watching his people suffer. But verses 14 through 17 seem to tell a different story. In verse 14, we see that God will uproot Israel from their land. They will go into exile as punishment for their sins. But those evil neighbors, those surrounding nations that persecuted, influenced, twisted the children of Israel, they too are going to be uprooted. God will bring justice by uprooting those who persecuted his chosen people. And for these chosen people... God's process of scattering, sending them out, does not come without a corresponding gathering, bringing them back in, bringing them back home. This season of being sent into the wilderness, a season of spiritual exile, is only for a time. It will come to an end. Verse 15 signifies a wonderful change in tone. And after I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them. I will bring them again, each to his heritage and each to his land. God begins the process of restoration in this verse, bringing his chosen people back to the land that he had given them. This restoration is accompanied by an invitation to enter again into covenant with God. This is verse 16. If they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. Here finally, it's the answer Jeremiah has been waiting for. God's promise in verse 16 is a sharp and surprising reversal to the rebuking tone of the previous verses. In a world of destruction, where the enemy of Enemies of God's people continually abuse. God offers a way out, a way of restoration to his people. A reminder that God is in control, dark though the time might be. It would be easy to focus on Jeremiah's plea, on his complaint against God. Easier still to focus on the ways in which the children of Judah have been subjected to relentless suffering. But God is in the process of restoration, not destruction. 
We see this in the life of Job, who after losing everything, he refuses to disavow God, to deny God. Even when his friends are telling him to doubt, to reject God, you've lost it all. What are you doing? Why do you still believe in God? God comes in a fearsome and mighty whirlwind in Job 38 and responds to Job's plea. Where were you before the foundations of the earth? Where were you? I was there. God says, and once he has illustrated to Job that he is powerful beyond our imagination, he restores Job to his former glory and gives him more than he had before. We see this in the lives of so many others throughout Scripture. Abraham, King David, Peter, Paul. We see this in our own lives as well. Our sinful acedia, our paralyzing weakness, our false self-sufficiency, defeated by the power of God, corrected by God's warm embrace. His call to love and enter again into community with him, our wills aligned with his will. Our thoughts aligned with his thoughts. God is offering a hand out to you and me in the wilderness of our spirit, reminding us to shake off the dust of our soul, breathing in new life and covenant with him. When I read the passage from Psalm 13 earlier, I didn't finish the psalm, so I'm going to bring it back here so that we see David's final response to God. It says this, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. David is reorienting himself by God's grace out of the desert and into the newness of life in God. And here's perhaps a radical idea, a difficult idea to those of you who feel like you are stuck. You're stuck in a spiritual desert. I wonder if we're called to that place, if we're called to these stages of life These stages where it is difficult to know what to do and what to think. Stages of doubt. What do I believe? Where am I going? Who really is God and what does he want from me? What can I really offer him? In these moments of weakness, of acedia, God finds us. And when we encounter this greater love outside of ourselves, we are given a way out of the desert. It's a difficult process. The journey may be long. We may find our way out and back and out again, out of the wilderness. God is there with his inviting hand. We have only to reorient ourselves and lives, offering up in our small way an attitude of willingness and humility of prayer. This praying without ceasing in the desert may be difficult, a life as prayer. Your soul might cry out and resist it just as Jeremiah did. But it is nevertheless a necessary step toward resting in God. Even when our throat is parched, our soul thirsts and longs for God. Hear the words of contemporary writer Kathleen Norris, who talks about rest and prayer as an antidote to the temptation of acedia. She says this. She quotes uh, the Catholic writer Henry Nouwen in this as well. We might as well ask if these crazy monks don't have it coming. If your goal is to pray without ceasing, aren't you asking for trouble? Is this a reasonable goal or even a good one? Henry Nouwen tells us that the literal translation of the words pray always is come to rest. The Greek word for rest, he adds, is hesia, and hesychism is a term which refers to the spirituality of the desert, almost kind of this hermit-like state we have to be in sometimes. 
The rest that the monk is seeking is not an easy one. And as Nowen writes, it has little to do with the absence of conflict or pain. Conflict or pain is going to be there. It is a rest in God in the midst of a very intense daily struggle. It's happening simultaneously. Acedia is the monk's temptation because in a demanding life of prayer, it offers the ease of indifference. It's the easy way out. If you are feeling indifferent, if you are feeling let down, if your complaints against God are longer longer than your laundry list of things to do, assignments to complete, then know that nothing else is being asked of you but to come to God. God will take our desert, our wilderness, and create life where it seems there is only death. Maybe we don't even have to find our way out of the desert. Maybe our desert will be transformed, renewed. I'll close with the words of the prophet Isaiah. This is in Isaiah 43, beginning in verse 19. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Let's pray. Father, you are in the process of making all things new. You give rain in the desert. You cause grass to grow where before there was nothing. Lord, revive the dryness of our souls. Help us not to be afraid of the silences. Help us not to be afraid of the wilderness. Reorient us, O God. Give rain where there is drought. Help us to seek out the manna that you provide for us realizing our sustenance comes from you alone. Let this renewal lead to a new song, Lord. Teach us to sing again. Teach us to follow you, to follow you out of the desert and into the abundance of life with you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.